We have one mission in common, which is explaining to the world how powerful a force design can be to build together a future. We really see the need for non-performative design, for design that comes from community and is done by community. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Melman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're exploring the theme of Our Future City. We're discussing how New York is being revitalized, reinvented, and rediscovered through design. At its best, design can be an agent of empowerment, facilitating positive, sustainable changes in our communities that bring us together, create equity, and ensure a brighter future for all. But during times of crisis, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, Design challenges us to look deep into the wells of inspiration that charge our demand for change. As crisis so often exposes the fault lines in the structures around us, it also reinforces our community bonds. On today's episode, we will explore the complex relationship between design, crisis, and community with our wonderful guests, Paola Antonelli and Sloan Leo. We will consider how social issues can be addressed through design and ultimately how we can turn to design in creating the future we dream of. First, I'd like to introduce my friend Paola Antonelli. Paola is the esteemed senior curator at the Museum of Modern Art in the Department of Architecture and Design and MoMA's founding director of research and development. Her most recent exhibition, Broken Nature, opened at MoMA in November 2020. She is also currently working on Design Emergency, a fantastic Instagram and book project that explores design's role in building a better future for all in collaboration with design critic Alice Rothorn. Paula, thank you so much for joining us. So good to see you. Well, thank you for having me, Debbie, and thank you for the esteemed, but also especially for the friend. That was very cherished. Thank you. It's true. We're friends. Yes, indeed. Paula, let's talk a little bit about your role as founding director of research and development at MoMA. I'd love for you to share with our listeners how long you've had the title, what does it mean, and how does it interact and intervene with your curatorial role? studied economics before switching to architecture. So I've remained conversant with that particular world. And I've always had a chip on my shoulder because people always say that the financial sector or even the industrial sector are fundamental to the destinies of society. But the moment there's like a whiff of trouble, the budgets for culture get slashed and culture gets thrown down the drain and into the abyss. So I remember that in 2008, when the financial crisis happened, I thought that it would be a great opportunity for museums. And, you know, I've been at MoMA at this point for 28 years, so it's been a long time coming. And I thought that at that point, we could really show the world that that museums can be the R&D of society. 
and that culture can provide the kind of progress that is slow, like slow food, right? So more systemic and more long-term, more sustainable. So I just thought that it was a great opportunity to show how museums can help people in everyday life. So not only to come and contemplate art, but uh, for instance, they could help people deal with death. You know, how do I think of death? How do I protest today? What is the role of white males? So we were having these salons thematic salons that were really devoted to these topics. There was a salon on white males, there was a salon on the algorithm, a salon on angels, like topics that are as universal and as general as they are sometimes incendiary of the moment or maybe not at all, but nonetheless topics that touch everybody's life. And that's what I wanted to do, bring together people in a museum, always at least one of them had to be an artist or a curator and then people from other disciplines to talk about these topics. But what is amazing, these salons have been going on at this point for almost, I would say, almost eight years, more or less, you know. I was going to say, I think even longer. I remember going to one and I think 2013, maybe 2012. Well, that's eight years. That's 2013. And the very first one was on curation, right? So so the idea is really this, to, to show that museums can be helpful. And what we do for these salons, I always have great collaborators, but what we do, they're free and people don't have to buy a ticket, but we send a reading list before. And so people know that we've already worked on it and show respect. It's very funny. You know, people talk about taking friction away from things. I believe that if you put more friction in things, people are going to appreciate it more. It's a little bit like paying for your therapy, right? So, <laughs> Best so investment I'm, ever. <laughs> so I'm really, really proud of this program because, because it's been fantastic. And some salons have been really difficult and contentious and I've, I've sweated bullets. You know, um, Nan Golden gave me a really hard time, for instance, when she came to speak about addiction. And, you know, she she was yeah, the Sackler family now got away with it. But that was really tough. I mean, there's been some speakers that have really given me a hard time for good for good reasons, but it's been always worth it. You've been in the news with some very provocative acquisitions at Sign, a helicopter. You've done exhibits on data. Talk about what is and maybe isn't design from your perspective. Well, I cannot claim credit for the helicopter that happened before my time, but definitely I want, can, and will always take my claim for the at sign because I'm really proud of it. What delimits design? Okay, I always say that design is pretty much everything because you have to set your own limits, otherwise you never end. Design or art can be everything. I stop at objects of all kinds that involve at least one of the senses. So even scent is a form of design. And in 2010, actually, I did a whole symposium on that. Music can be design or art, but I'm too ignorant, so I don't touch it. But you know, I, it, that's, that also falls into it. But then design can be palpable, impalpable, symbols, icons, interfaces. When you go and buy your MetroCard, that gorgeous interface. It's interface design plus the whole design of the machine. It's infrastructures, it's landscape, it's also objects and furniture, but furniture is just a fragment of it. So the reason why I'm so proud of the at sign is like multifaceted. First of all, 
It's a symbol, an icon. You're a graphic designer. You know very well what I mean. You know, it's a symbol that has existed since the Middle Ages. And since the Middle Ages, it's had the same meaning. It was an abbreviation of a preposition that connected things in space or people with objects. And it resisted through the centuries. And then it was adopted by an engineer, Ray Tomlinson, in 1971, because he found it on the keyboard of his teletype, he understood what it meant because accountants used it and he adopted it for the email program that he was designing for the government of the United States. So all of a sudden, centuries later, same thing, abbreviation, same meaning, and all of a sudden it becomes part of our life. It's a gorgeous object, but there's an added value to it, the public domain. So the idea of being able to collect something that is in the public domain means that you don't need to acquire and possess objects anymore to show them, to display them in a collection. You can anoint them. So now I don't want to take the whole space of this podcast to talk about it, but the nature of the at sign, aesthetics, function, permanence in the centuries, modernity, expression of identity, public domain. So everything makes it one of the most beautiful acquisitions that I've ever worked on. And that's it. You know, there's hardly any limit. There's limits to my expertise, but not to design. Speaking of the public domain, Paola, we have been really inspired and entertained by your Instagram live series and project Design Emergency. We'd love to know more about it. What prompted you to begin the series? How has it evolved? Tell us about a favorite episode. Tell us everything. Absolutely. Well, favorite episode, there are so many, but I'll start from the beginning. So the pandemic starts, lockdown, New York City, my husband and myself in our small apartment, the world is falling apart around us. And we have this strange bubble of quiet instead that is almost uncanny. And so we're looking at each other saying, oh my God, we can read books, we can watch TV, we can listen to the radio. And Larry's listening always to Fat Joe, the hip hop artist that every night has these Instagram lives with his friends. And really interesting. And he tells me, Paula, you know, you could do this too. I'm like, well, you think so? Why by myself? Let's do it with Alice. You know, Alice Rostorn, as Debbie said, is a fabulous design critic and author. And she also happens to be one of my best friends. And we have one mission in common, which is that of explaining to the world how powerful a force design can be to build together a future for citizens, not only for designers and artists, for everyone. So Alice and I decide to try our hand at Instagram Live. We call our friend Frith Kerr, who's a graphic designer. She whips together an identity, fabulous identity in three days, and off we go. And ever since, we have been taking a few pauses, but we have been interviewing one person every week. We started out with designers that were really involved in the pandemic. So we could explain to people what designers do. And the designers ranged from Michael Murphy, who's an architect that does healthcare facilities during emergencies. He worked in Rwanda during Ebola. He worked in Haiti during cholera. And he worked with Mount Sinai in New York during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. Then we um, interviewed Alisa Eckert, who's one of the two designers from the illustrators from the CDC that designed the Hellraiser ball, the deep sea mine that is the international image of the coronavirus. We interviewed Mark Dalton from BBCDO in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, New Zealand had the best 
COVID-19 awareness campaign, so we interviewed him, and so on and so forth. We just went through many, many types of design, many heroes of design of the pandemic. And then after that, every now and then, Alice and I would have these double acts on hacking, on hope, on the symbology, on the symbolism of the pandemic. But we keep going because the motto is that there is always a design emergency because there's always an emergency in the world. So we did special issues when the murder of George Floyd happened, when the Beirut blast happened, the wildfires in the West. So every single emergency, ongoing or sudden, is an opportunity for us to show how design can help. Even now, we're thinking of, of Afghanistan because one of the interviews was with the Afghani entrepreneur that organized, you might have heard about this group of teenage girl hackers from Afghanistan that actually in Herat that had started doing ventilators and PPE and that had to flee Afghanistan. They were able to flee Afghanistan. And so it's been quite amazing to follow current events and react. And that's what I like doing in general. I feel that design is always political. If you don't want it to be political, you really have to make an effort. You have to take yourself away from the world of design and go into the, actually, Peter Saville used to call it art light, you know, so the amuse-bouche for bored art collectors. That's So you have to take yourself away from the public realm and the political realm. Otherwise, design is politics. Paula, I have one last question before I begin to talk with Sloan. As we consider the role that design plays in a crisis, do you see common denominators that artists, architects, and designers share in shaping both the discourse as well as offering solutions to the crises that we're facing? Yes, always. I feel that the common ground is always survival. That's what happens, you know, when a crisis hits, we need to survive. And that's an instinct that, as you know, is also used to prolong life in mice. So, I mean, it really is, it's a natural instinct. That said, every single artist, designer, scientist might have a different opinion of what survival means and how we can survive better and even thrive. So at that point, the common ground is the envisioning of the direction and of the path there. So I feel that what is always important is the receiving antenna, right? It's wonderful to have this multitude and diversity of opinions, of paths, of expressions. What I believe I need to do as a curator and everybody else needs to do is to strengthen citizens' critical sense so that all of this plethora of idea that come our way can be then filtered and can be assessed without being drunk like Kool-Aid. Thank you, Paola. If you could stick around for a little bit, I'd love to have you rejoin our conversation after I chat with Sloan Leo. I am so honored to welcome our next guest, Sloan Leo, an impactful artist, writer, and the founder and CEO of Flux Studio Inc., a community design and strategy studio that emphasizes equity and inclusivity in each of its projects. Flux Studios works with clients such as the Wikimedia Foundation, the New York Women's Foundation, and the donors of Color Network, among many, many others. They were formerly the Board of Directors Governance Chair for the Ms. Foundation for Women, and now serves on the boards of Queer Archive Work and the Institute for Afrofuturist Ecology. 
Welcome, Sloan. So happy to be here, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Sloan, the mission statement on the Flock Studio website says, Flock Studio seeks to manifest a near future where power is shared, misfits feel they belong, and work is more human. Tell us a little bit more about how your mission at Flox and the studio was conceived, particularly interested in the misfits part. You know, I think that the gift of being the odd one out is that the older you get, the more you're like, wow, this is really helpful. I grew up in a small, predominantly white suburb in upstate New York, and I was one of the only Black students in high school and in and K through 12. And that continued to kind of follow me along my life, the sense of being the only or the non-belonging person, whether because of my blackness, my queerness, my political orientation, or my approach to how I live, I always was on the outside. And growing up as someone who went to college at 16 and graduate school at 19, by the time I got to work, I already had a pretty clear critical analysis. And I worked in social impact my entire career and Flock started with, I think like Paula, a little bit of a thorn in my side or a chip on my shoulder because we come to nonprofit work after reading these beautiful websites with these powerful statements of conviction and intention around equity and sustainability and justice. And then we're thrust into a sector that is modeled after mostly design from the corporate space. And so Flock's really started to say, How do we create space for people who are either in design and are like, there's something about social justice and community that I want to put in my practice, but they're isolated working at a big company or they work in the social sector and they're like, this is not designed well. I don't even understand design, but I know this needs to be redesigned. So Flocks exists to be a beacon for those folks who do feel this lack of belonging because of their commitment to both design and justice and community. Your work emphasizes the engagement of design in an authentic manner rather than the purely aesthetic. And I was really fascinated by this. How do you differentiate between the authentic and the aesthetic within the context of design? And how does this play out when it comes to addressing social issues? Yeah, you know, so much of what it means to address a social issue is about the response or the responsibility of power to address that which is urgent. So inherent in that is a political sentiment about whose urgency matters. And what I have found in our work is that authenticity really comes down to, are you moving from that place of survival? Are you informed by the urgent need for housing, for food, for justice? Or are you performing justice? Are you performing and signaling that like, yes, this is important, but the materiality of your life is not impacted by the design decision? It's more performative. Yeah. And so we really see the need for non-performative design, for design that comes from community and is done by community. There's the adage right now of we should move from design for to design with. And at our studio, we actually want to take it a step further and say design by. So it's really moving a step beyond even human-centered design to be talking about community design, which is more authentic and is rooted in lived experiences and building new capacities for folks who understand the urgency in a very felt and embodied way. I'm really struck by what you said about whose urgency matters. Are you finding that we're beginning to take into account a broader sense of urgencies? Or are you feeling that we're still fighting the same old fights? 
Well, I think it partly depends on what you mean by we. I, as a designer, would definitely say like the people that I identify that are part of the Floxiverse as we know ourselves, we are acting with the urgency of a need for justice and to move towards abolition. I would say that the kind of larger design ecosystem is trying and appropriately grappling, right? Like IDEO, for example, was really taken aback by feedback they received around how they've handled race and equity. And and they're also thinking about their response to that urgent call for equity. So I don't look at things in a black and white way. We at our studio and in my practice really even resisting the binaries. We have a non-binary and a non-linear understanding of how change happens. And so I think that designers and design institutions are learning how to find that more organic rhythm and response after having a lot of design education and design uh, practices that are actually quite static and stiff. And we want to find more ways to be in flow in the design community. Can you talk a little bit about how design can be used or is meeting the needs of communities that are in crisis or any examples from your own body of work or others that you feel are, are doing important work? Oh, yeah. I think one of the outcomes of the pandemic has been a shared understanding of like, oh, community rights. And people always ask me, like, well, what is community? And I always say, I don't think community is a noun. Community is a verb. Community is about the shared stewardship of our resources. And we're seeing that in abundance in New York post or mid pandemic, wherever we find ourselves. You look at the early pandemic and the mobilization of the Corona couriers, which was a self-organized bike messenger group that delivered food to people who were unable to get out of their homes. Or I look at the mutual aid that has cropped up all over the country as a way of actually a reparative intervention to redistribute wealth and make sure that those resources get to the people who have an urgent material need. But then you also see it in projects that we have with groups like the Brooklyn Economic Justice Project, which is a coalition of seven nonprofits working on economic justice, who we've been using a community design approach to help them co-design a community grant making program. So this small pool of seven nonprofits who are working on food justice, gender justice, job training and skills, we use design, we use illustrations, we use the design process to support them as they decided, you know what we wanna do? We wanna give away $40,000 to everyday people in Bushwick and Flatbush and East New York and Brooklyn to do work that's gonna advance economic justice because they know they are closer to the understanding than the foundation that funds them. It seems like you're approaching design as a civic duty. Yeah, I would say design is a, a civic duty and it's also, it's an orientation and in a lot of ways right now it functions as a faith, as a way to feel hopeful and a time where we need tragic optimism more than ever. Have you always had your approach to design centered around community, the needs of the community, community development, or was that something that you evolved to? I never had the benefit of thinking that I was independent of community. I think that there is a danger inherent in class privilege, which I did grow up with, where you can accidentally say like, oh, I got here on my own. I'm a self-made person. 
And I, as a queer person, as a black person, as a trans person, know that those are false beliefs. There's a false, I, I, false idols of westernized, racialized capitalism that says you got there on your own. So I've always been in community. I joined my first community foundation board when I was 17, and we gave away money to women doing feminist social change in upstate New York. So for me, it's not even a, it's not even a question. It is the answer and it is the reason. Where is design best promoting equity, both in the communities that are being served by design or in the industry as a whole? I love the work that Dr. Christina Harrington has done. Originally, she was at DePaul University, and now I believe she's in Pittsburgh. And her work is actually a project called the Denizen Designer Project, where she interviewed over 120 self-identified community designers to say, how is the field serving you? How are you serving the field? How are you serving your communities? And pulled together this amazing zine and report that actually helps people who work in community to better understand that like, what they're doing is a type of design, and that there are other tools and frameworks and materials materials that they can be using in their work to support and evolve and ideally liberate community. Sloan, my last question is about a piece of your own work. Can you talk a bit about the Watermelon Project? Oh, sure. I think much like Paula during the pandemic, I found myself after traveling a million miles in eight years and never being at my house home for the first time in a decade and alone after the end of a long relationship. And I was like, what do I do with myself here in this apartment? And there are a variety of objects that I fell in love with from my grandparents. So my grandfather's brass knuckles, mind you, he was a minister, a black Baptist minister, my grandmother's recipe box address from when she used to host church dinners and some other ephemera from my life. And so I started making videos and I made a video of myself eating a huge piece of watermelon without any shame in the sun. And I overlaid this short, I think it was two or three minute video with a story about how much my grandfather and I loved watermelon, loved the fruit, but I never wanted to eat it in public because the history of how watermelon became a black fruit is actually a history of how designers in the marketing field said, oh, you see those black folks over there. We don't want them to be citizens because look at them eating watermelon in the sun. They are lazy. They are feckless. And so it was this horrific decision to feel joy from black folks. And so my piece was really about a private moment of reclamation of the simple joy that is has been sullied by the way racism operates in this country. So the show was a multi-piece uh, mixed media installation at a gallery, at Pen and Brush Gallery um, in Chelsea. So it was 1,200 square feet of those objects in dialogue with one another with an invitation to say, how are you relating to your Blackness, to faith, and to ideas of tradition and routine and expectation? Two things that I want to mention about, about that. I was sharing it with my wife, who's a woman of color, and we recalled that her nephew, much younger nephew, 25 years old, would not eat watermelon in public for that very reason. And it was just so heartbreaking that that still exists in today's society. 
the trauma runs deep as the trauma runs deep in our society for all of us. And whether you're material harm day to day because of the way racism and anti-blackness plays out, or whether you're a white person who doesn't have any sense of culture or identity, these systems, be it gender or race, do enact violence upon the body. And so the goal of my work is to actually acknowledge that violence and then to find a moment for myself of deep personal healing that I'm able to share externally. And we turned that piece into a 13-minute documentary that really allows it to travel. Because again, as the pandemic wears on, we've had to get creative about how do we intervene and create space for these more dynamic and heartfelt and, and complex conversations. I find it so interesting what you both have been able, you and Paola have been able to do in times of crisis by taking the crisis, turning it a bit on its head and offering new opportunities to see what could be done in that space. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Sloan, about the Watermelon Project was it seems when I looked at the materials that are for sale, that even the percentage that goes to artists is being challenged and with more money going to the artists than, than ever before, really. And that's, I will give a shout out to Don Delicat at Pen and Brush Gallery. They're a gallery that's been around for a hundred years that prioritizes and only shows the work of women, gender nonconforming and trans artists. So they really did a wonderful job by me as a new and emerging artist that the sales of the work predominantly came to me um, for my own financial sustainability. And that is not always the case as I'm sure the three of us know about how the corporate and the commercial art market really works. Thank you so much, Sloan. I'd now like to ask Paola Antonelli to rejoin us so we can all talk together. Welcome back, Paola. I have a question for you both. Design often entails a sort of creative destruction, especially in a crisis where old structures are torn down to create new ones, both in the literal and the conceptual sense. How do you feel creative destruction manifests, if at all, in your work? And do you believe a degree of creative destruction is necessary to instigate social change? I am... I, I bristle at the word destruction in a certain way. Deconstruction, maybe? Is that a better word? Deconstruction. Yeah, I feel like deconstruction is, is perhaps more where I would land at least because there's this adage, you know, in Silicon Valley of like fail fast and break things. There is a harm first mentality, I find, and that that is where kind of like innovation and design culture and management consulting really have been playing for years. But when I look at organizations like Black Space, a Black urbanist collective here in the city run by Emma Asore and Kenyatta McLean, they are people that I admire so much because they talk about like I feel like in our work with them, there's like this beautiful deconstruction where it's almost as if everything can be slowed for a moment. So we can be very intentional because part of the challenge I feel we're in right now is that we are moving fast, breaking things and very factioned as a country, which means that the nuance, the things that we wanna keep, the tender things, the things that matter to the soul can get ripped away if we're just kind of haphazardly throwing things away. I think what emerges in crisis to me is actually a creative resourcefulness in, is part of that. So in the deconstruction it is also holding space for reconstruction and for emergence that I have found in our practice happens every day in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but it happens a lot more in a beautiful way over time to figure out what it is that you keep doing and what it is that you stop doing. Paula, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, you said it so beautifully. 
No, no, I, Sloan said it so beautifully because I also have an allergy for that move fast, break things, and that kind of nihilism. And it's it's pretty much what Sloan was talking about when they were talking about not getting somewhere on their own. It's impossible. And everything that happened in the past is fodder for the present and for the future. And there's no need to destroy it. You can metabolize it. You know, it's uh, it's really about digesting. If you have to digest your own, you digest your own and you move on. So you said it beautifully. What are some of the changes that you both see happening in design right now that excite you? I don't want to talk about destruction anymore. I want to talk about things that are in in enlivening us, engaging us, and reinvigorating us. What are some of the things that you're seeing in design right now that really give you hope about what our future entails? What I like is that there's even more space for something that was happening already before the pandemic, which is um, attention to how the rest of the world works. When Sloan was talking about mutual aid, I was thinking about the self-help groups in India, women self-help groups that have existed for almost a century that are the fundamentals of every crisis, of the solution of every crisis. So we start looking at, I don't like any definition of of otherness. I don't like this idea of informal that we hear all the time, but it's just like other ways to live, which is always the most inspiring things. That's why we read biographies, right? Because we learn from how others cope with that. So what I think is really interesting that's happening in design is this attention to other types of solution, this dismantling of certain myths of Western capitalist type of design, the design thinking, you know, that I've always been allergic to the whole idea of design thinking, what it stands for. So all of a sudden, it's accepted and interesting and and actually desirable to consider design as an activism tool and not just as a marketing or a consulting company ploy. It's really a, an openness to the possibilities of design that I think will continue for quite a while. I appreciate all of those sentiments, Paola, and we'll, and we'll build on that so beautifully uh, articulated. I was thinking about this as you're saying, I'm like, there's a few things, but the one that gives me like a warm sensation in my gut and like a smile on the face is actually about care and healing. So there's work that uh, Mia Osaki, who's a friend and the chair of the Design for Social Innovation program at SVA, we talk a lot about what does it mean to design for care? And also in our projects with community organizations, we've been talking about like, what does it mean to design caring infrastructure in our organizations? And you see that playing out in design in ways where it's like the design of well-being programs for employees. Nike, for example, took a week off for people to navigate the difficulties of pandemic living. You see design for care as how we navigate patients designing patient services and wanting to really do that with care. And we see it at our studio with our studio co-operators, which is how we refer to people who work at the studio, which is if we're designing for care with each other, it means like writing down all the work that you've done so that you can pass it on to the next junior staff person who comes in. So they have a plan. It's about generosity. And I'm seeing that throughout the sector, these emergent moments, these curiosities people have of what would it look like to add some softness, some gentleness and care after years where I think a lot of us have felt burned and and tired. And so care feels like a beautiful balm right now that design can offer. 
So interesting from the fail fast and break things modality. But one thing that I was thinking about as you were both talking and, and an interesting overlap to consider was the notion, Paola, you talked about the how we metabolize things. And Sloan, you were talking about how one of the things you really appreciated in the early days of the pandemic was how we were all helping each other more. And we saw the same thing happen after 9-11, where there was an outpouring of generosity, of sharing, of kindness, more tenderness, less, less greed for, for a bit. But then we, I think we've metabolized both of these experiences in a way that when things begin to seem better, that goes away. And I'm wondering if you have any sense of why we metabolize that generosity, why we metabolize that sense of other, of helping others in a way that, that doesn't remain. I don't think the aftermath, I think we still feel the consequences of 9-11 in terms of being kinder to each other. I mean, if you compare, I'm not talking about the 0.00001% whose gap, enrichment gap has become stratospheric, but amongst us little people, that kindness and tenderness, I love that Sloan talked about tenderness, has remained. I don't think it's ever gone away. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I, I I think you're more optimistic than I am. I guess the the state of New York right now is is hard to see. You know, to see the amount of retail for lease signs and windows, and not hearing that seven o'clock pan banging anymore. Like, why did that stop? That bothers me. I feel like we're still in a crisis, and I wish that we could be helping each other more and not fighting so much of about over whether or not we should be wearing masks or whether or not we should be vaccinated and questions that seem so clear to me, but yet blurry in, in the sort of place it is in culture. I also, Debbie, will add that there in, in, our, in our work to resist binaries, it's like, is it gone or is it here, right? So if we can resist the binary, it's, it's both here and gone. There's a, there's a residue that's left after every interaction, right? Kind of like we leave a data trail, we leave a care residue empathy trail. And I, I look at the evolution of our, particularly in the US or just in New York, as something that has all of this in existence, but the volume or the perceptibility changes over time. So if the individual is softened deeply, that may not be reflected at a critical mass level in the news, but it still exists in the way you interact as you're buying your bacon, egg, and cheese, you know? Absolutely. So then I'm going to ask you a, a somewhat whimsical question, but one that will warm my heart. <laughs> How would you describe your vision for the future of New York? Slower, slower. We've all benefited from the hermitage, the solitudes that we've had. And that's easier when you have more resources, but it has happened among people of all, of all backgrounds that I know. And in it, there is this glee of, oh my God, I could read that book finally. I could listen to that podcast I could see my friend in the park. I could leave early because I'm working remote and go to the Rockaways and try surfing. There's these little moments that I'm seeing, particularly in folks in, 
who have enough resources to really just hold on to that space with each other. And I hope that the future of New York acknowledges that it is in those quiet, slower times where we restore, where we renew, and where we can be more abundant. And it's really that abundance that I hope for for us as a city. You know, from your lips to God's ears, I, I feel that 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 blessed and and surprising calm has already gone. <laughs> it's been what, like, you know, Broadway reopened last night and museums reopened just two weeks ago. Being, and and it's already the usual madness. But I, I agree with you. I think we found different pockets in our life that we didn't know existed before. And I hope that the same will happen also in the street. What you were discussing before, Debbie, retail is something that has been on my mind because I, I live on Broadway, right? So I've seen really all this all these cavities, these teeth that fell. And I was thinking, what can one do with that? And you know, Americans and especially New Yorkers have always been jealous of, say, Paris cafe society. So I was thinking instead of doing co-working spaces that all seem to start having the same design language and can become a little trite, wouldn't it be great if those spaces could be taken over by cafes and people could work there with the cafe. I, don't, I, I was thinking maybe we can keep this a little fluid. And I know that Dan Doktorov has already proclaimed the end of the outside sheds for restaurants as if he could still tell us what to do. But still, we need to think of what to do with the streets, something that we have learned during the pandemic, which is the colonization or decolonization of the street. And it can go on. It can go on in a way that is at the same time productive and creative. I have one last question, and it's building on your last statement, Sloan. You mentioned books. I'd love, as we're now nearing fall, for you both to recommend something for the perfect reading weather. Do you have one book recommendation that you might suggest our listeners read? I'm going to say something that is a bit uplifting. No, I, one of my favorite books is Italo Calvino, you know, the Italian writer, his Italian fairy tales. So he went all over Italy and he collected all this oral history or all these tales. And since they are tales from the people, some of them are gruesome and they're scary as hell. And others instead are really wonderful. But I, I, I used to, as a child, make illustrations and there's this illustration of a princess chained with flames coming up. I mean, it's, it's, but they're really beautiful. So Italo Calvino, Italian tales. My dense book would be The Power Manual by Cindy Suarez, which explores the dynamics of power in the workplace and talks about liberation and decolonized thinking in a really just kind of like perfectly smart engaging and crisp a new way. And then I think the other kind of lighter book that I find I go back and back to again and again is actually a book called Beyond Sticky Notes by Kellyanne McCurcher, which is a book of co-design tools for everybody. So whether you're a designer or a non-designer or a soon-to-be designer, it I think can really advance your practice from the start. Paola Antonelli, Sloan Leo, thank you both so much for joining us today on NYC by Designs the Mic. You both inspire our design community with your incredible work and your brilliant insight. Thank you, thank you. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, 
Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design.